0: They, within themselves, they talk a lot about this stuff, just like I'm talking to you about crap and I don't give a crap. (laughs) But I think that overall we have this kind of taboo that, oh crap, is this thing for kids and and, and it's childish to talk about it or it's uh, disgusting to talk about it. I wanna change that. I wanna make it as normal as talking about cardiovascular health or any other type of aspect of your health. I don't see why it should be different.
1: Hey, people. Welcome to the Style is Free podcast. I'm your host, Brett Talibowitz. Today on the show, we have David Ashuel. He is a second-year Cornell Tech student with me, originally in my program, the Connected Media program, but has since switched into the Health Tech program. Part of that switch is because he's very interested in the microbiome and how your food intake, digestion, microbiome all affects your health and your poop, your stool, your crap, so that's what we're going to talk about today. So please give a warm welcome to David and thanks for coming on, David.
0: Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Good. It's a pretty cold day in New York, but uh, it's sunny. I
1: know, yeah, <laughs> finally dropped below freezing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Busy day though. We're all busy here at Cornell Tech.
1: Yeah, finals week over here for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, very busy. So... Last time we were talking, we started talking about microbiomes and how it affects the human body. What's some interesting research you've seen with that, that really triggers you, that makes you really interested in it?
0: Sure. So, and full disclaimer, I'm no expert in microbiome research in general, but I, as far as I can tell, it's been just very little time that researchers have really delved into the microbiome world. Most of it has to do with the fact that the way you measure microbiome composition is through DNA sequencing of the microbiota that populates the gut. And that technology hasn't really been financially feasible until very recently. In fact, I think the first studies were around 2008, 2007, that were done in this kind of uh, realm. So research is still in, very much in its uh, infancy, in that sense. Yeah, so um,
1: you're saying a big part of it is to sequence the DNA of your microbiome? Right. So that's all, for people who don't know what microbiome is, it's the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses, everything exactly. that's not you in your human body. So, that's one, right. like sequencing your DNA is well, a big deal. Well, let, right? <laughs> le, like,
0: let, me, let me challenge that. It's not you. I'm not sure that's correct. I mean, if you think about it, we have evolved with microbes uh, within ourselves and many other creatures as well. And to some extent, they're part of us. In fact, we are... Less human than microbiome in counts of cells, if you want, where one part human, ten parts bacteria. So um, I was
1: looking that, that up today. That yeah. was like an estimate number. Yeah. The now, no one really knows the exact number. It's now at 1.3 to one microbiome bacteria to human cells.
0: In terms of weight or in terms of... Uh, uh, I
1: don't know about weight in terms of number count. count. So if you have around 39 trillion of just like the average man they gave a round number like 5'7", yeah. 154 pounds yeah. is 39 trillion bacteria or microbiome and then 30 trillion human cells. yeah. So it still outweighs your human cells which for your makeup yeah. is huge.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. So you, you, you can understand how much gene information is, is packed into all of that bacteria and therefore realizing that we have evolved with bacteria, not independently from bacteria. And so they're a big component of how we work and how we interact with our environment. And uh, research is still very much in its infancy. So I think that's that's an exciting area.
1: So you're saying the DNA in the bacteria, we've evolved with them as time goes on. So they're a part of us through evolution.
0: Yeah. And in you- fact, I'll give you an example. We we're not able to digest a lot of nutrients without that bacteria. In fact, if we were born in a complete vacuum and completely isolated in a sterile environment, then we'd probably not survive. It, there was an example of uh, some kids when when uh, Europeans first colonized Patagonia uh, in South America and, and they discovered the South Pole, they were trying to move to the South Pole uh, to conquer the new territory that the South Pole could be. And kids that were born there and then brought back to... Uh, South America uh, were dying. They were just not able to survive in their environment just because their microbiome was not developed enough to be able to cope with the complexity, the chemical complexity of yeah. you know, the food and, and everything else that we need today. Just
1: it's very reminiscent of when Europeans came to the Americas and a bunch of like Indians, yeah. like Native Americans died off due to just being introduced to new diseases, exactly. and new, which is still microbiomes in the same, same yeah. advent. And yeah, other stuff I was looking at today about how we spend ninety percent of our time indoors is very bad for a microbiome. We're breathing sterile air kind of that isn't getting all these different bacteria into our system to emerge with and adapt with at the same time.
0: That's right. I mean, if you if you think about it, it's so complex the type of interactions you can have. You have thousands of type of microorganisms and the types of interactions they engage with with our body are so complex that the methods that are used to study them are, are incredibly, you know, it, it's still being developed. And, and therefore, that's why it's still in its infancy. But it's a it's a very exciting area, for sure.
1: Yeah. yeah, you were saying there's sequencing their DNA. Like for us, we have our own DNA that's pretty much the same. And each cell, it's one set of DNA. Yeah. But you have that whole world of bacteria inside of you. It's tons of different DNA. Yeah. So. 10 to 100 times the amount of information in DNA for the whole microbacteria DNA inside you versus just your own DNA. That's right. And that's totally different per person.
0: That's right. So you can imagine all the the, the kind of gene expression that might be going on having 10 times more gene information there. So quite exciting, for sure.
1: Yeah, so something you were talking about last time when we were doing a little pre-podcasting was how C-sections are possibly worse for babies than
0: yeah. for natural birth. That's one example of how you can see differences between people impacting their everyday health. So there are several studies that have tracked babies that are born from C-section and, and regular through the vaginal canal and how babies born through the C-section end up having more allergies, uh, more intolerances to certain foods and so forth. And and the theory, the working theory, is that that is uh, caused by the first bacterial population that populates. Sorry for the redundancy. That populates the the gut of the host is different. When you're born through C-section, uh, the first bacteria that is in contact with you is probably the uh, nurse's hand or whatever is in the environment. But when you're born through the vaginal canal, the first bacteria uh, that are that populates your, your gut is uh, mostly bacilli or bacillus type of bacteria that is present in the vaginal canal. And, and those are the differences that years later you can see in the development of this uh, microbiome in these different
1: well, why be, Why is it, do you think, that it matters so much like just that one instance? Is everything built around that beginning, or how does that work?
0: Good question. What seems to be the case is that microbiome strongly develops until the third year and after that it's it kind of stable there are some differences but it's fairly stable after that that's what seems to be the working theory of why the first colonization is the one that matters
1: interesting it probably reaches some sort of equilibrium or your body with it right. equilibrium and yeah. it kind of evens out at three years interesting. yeah
0: but when you say equilibrium i think the one interesting thing that that is going on is a lot of these companies are trying to develop bacterial therapies. So bacterial therapies, one company, for instance, is Seed. Uh, Seed is based in Boston. It's a spin-off from uh, Harvard Medical School. And they're trying to develop these therapies that are basically trying to destabilize wrong equilibriums, if you want to call them like that. So if we're in the realm of dynamical systems, you might have reached an equilibrium in your population of bacteria. But there might be ways that you can introduce some perturbation that changes the equilibrium to some other equilibrium that is more optimal for health of the host so i think that's that's definitely a very interesting range of research and i'm not talking about probiotics prebiotics and all this stuff that is poorly understood not because you eat probiotic that contains whatever many varieties of of bacteria will that bacteria stay and engage you know particular way it's very poorly understood how that works and probably the best current bacterial therapy that exists is fecal matter transplant which is used in very extreme situations mostly in cases of um, uh, clostridium difficile infections so C. Diff infections Wait, these are infections it's called clostridium difficile it's a type of bacteria you normally catch it in hospitals so they're a type of hospital acquired disease it's basically impossible to kill it with antibiotics, current antibiotics, and some very severe cases that can actually can lead up to death uh, are cured using fecal matter transplant because your gut is in a dysbiotic state. Dysbiotic means that there is some inequilibrium of the population of bacteria and caused by the Clostridium difficile and therefore introducing bacteria through fecal matter of a healthy person uh, will kind of bring it back to equilibrium, and that's what seems to be working for now. So that's one example of how fecal matter transplant is being used.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Other stuff, my research today has shown taking, I don't know, the same as a fecal matter transplant or just taking parts from inside, like I guess mice or it might have been even humans to mice where – They have like skinny genes or or obese genes and they put in the mice and the mice actually like shrink or grow based off of just taking in intestinal parts from i think humans maybe yeah
0: so a lot of this type of research is being done of course in in animals and particularly in mice which are and mice by the way are not small humans they're just they're (laughs) different so they might kind of suggest how things work but are not a perfect representation of how the human gut works but in your example sure there's been studies where you can determine or suggest, I guess, causes of obesity based on bacterial composition in mice and how if you change bacteria in mice by first giving antibiotics kind of resetting the, the gut bacteria and then transplanting stool from another mouse, you can see changes in, in things like obesity, in fact, diabetes as well, and even mental uh, or psychological transformations. There are studies that show how when you're uh, of the type of very social type or very um, uh,
1: extrovert.
0: Extrovert. There you go. That's the word. Sorry for my lack of <laughs> English uh, vocabulary. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I'm from Spain, by the way. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the, the, there was a study about introvert and extrovert mice, and and how by literally switching their uh, fecal matters one to the other, by the process I described earlier, you can actually see basically an inversion of of their mental or psychological profile. So it's quite interesting. Um, wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Especially some other stuff I've seen is how hormone and hormone levels can affect you. And on my reading today that your microbiome level can affect your hormone level and that, that's all intertwined as well. It's more than just even the microbiome level and your cellular level. you got hormones, you got so many things going on at that such like microscopic level. Yeah. That just uh, interesting ecosystem. So going
0: on. It's, it's starting to be a very early experiments on how your microbiome interacts with your gut nervous system, which is called the enteric nervous system. That's where the word gastroenterology comes from. So enteric nervous system, which has almost as many uh, nervous cells as the spinal cord. So so it's a secondary brain, if you want, in its own. How the microbiome interacts with that enteric nervous system and how that interacts with the brain and how that kind of interaction is not one way. It's actually multiple ways. And there is a lot of biomolecular signaling that happens from the brain to the gut and from the gut to the brain through the microbiome as well. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. So for instance, when you're under stress, a lot of people, for instance, when when they've lost someone, start showing gastrointestinal symptoms. So let's say the stress of losing someone apparently has consequences in the GI tract. And it's thought that that is through certain proteins that the brain generates when it's under stress that then chemically communicate with the gut and cause some dysbiotic state in the gut as well. And so it's interesting. So a lot of patients that have chronic digestive disorders, regulating mental health. So like having uh, meditation, yoga and things like that actually help a lot in reducing the severity of symptoms so it's quite interesting for sure yeah
1: that's very interesting because yes. it's always like oh i'm stressing out i'm getting heartburn sort yeah. of thing you hear that phrase a lot it's yeah because it's this whole nervous system connection plus the microbiome connection well
0: think about it we, we say a lot of things when you say a gut feeling or when you say i need to digest this information we always talk about stuff as if we're coming through our gut first and then to our brain somehow so i think it it's an interesting uh kind of parallelism between that and the idea
1: yeah right, there's but, a reason we, we think like that
0: <laughs> yeah it could be i don't know <laughs> that's
1: awesome yeah okay so some rewinding a little bit something i need mean, to get the image out of my head so when you say a fecal matter transplant i see like human centipede what is like a fecal a fecal matter transplant like do you take a needle and inject in and out i just need like a proper image you
0: know <laughs> i don't I haven't really delved into the details of how that works. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know there is a a shortage of that type of treatment in the U.S. And a lot of people, when they're recommended by their their gastroenterologists to do this kind of treatment, they have to travel abroad, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly to Canada, just because in the U.S. it's only allowed for certain types of cases, such as the C. difficile infection that I mentioned earlier. But... There are companies that are trying to make that more popular, popularize this kind of treatment. In in particular, there is this company called Open Biome in Boston, who's actually accepting donations for stool. And they're kind of purifying it. They're putting it in capsules. They're kind of freezing it afterwards. And they're kind of building all this automation in the collection process of stool for then giving it as as a therapy to people that might need it. And... Yeah, that's as far as I know. I'm mm-hmm. not sure how it works after okay. that. Okay. I, I, physical I can,
1: implementation.
0: You don't take it through the mouth. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I although there's people good. working on pills that will kind of last and dissolve only when they reach the lower GI tract. So. Oh. Uh,
1: so it is through the mouth, then. In some cases. Not,
0: not, not yet, as but far as I know. But for now, it goes from the bottom up. Okay. It's a bottom-up bottom approach. Cheers. <laughs>
1: yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So you're saying this company in Boston, they do, they freeze people's stool samples in order to hopefully give to other people in the future. So there's like a huge analysis process on that, those stool samples to know, like, how do I know like your stool is good for me?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I I am not sure how they do this. Uh, what I can tell you though, is that preparing for these type of processes, uh, not only for donating stool, but also for colonoscopy, for instance, is a process that involves a lot of preparation, so for instance, for a colonoscopy, if you want the doctor to be able to see every possible tissue element and identify there are any polyps or any kind of inflammation that, that they might want to look at, you need to, to go through a cleansing process. So there are preparation processes for doing colonoscopies that involve understanding the stool consistency that comes out over some period of time and making sure that that kind of guarantees that your inner column will be clean enough for the doctor to be able to look at things. I suspect something similar might happen for these donation of, of stool. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I don't live in Boston, but I would love, I would love to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the only local PC. For now, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. That's,
1: that's good. That's a good <laughs> environmental twist to it. Yes. So I think this is a good transition into kind of what you're working on with Augie.
0: Sure. So. Just to give a bit of context and for those who are interested in Cornell Tech as a community in general. So for the two-year master programs, we have a one-year research project. And it's kind of the ideal moment for anybody to experiment with wild ideas. And hence, (laughs) (laughs) now I could say way into what I'm working on. I was initially interested in, in being able to capture valuable health information at home. Of course, there's a lot of products and companies working on this, on this very issue, sleep tracking, exercise tracking, and so forth. But I really wanted to do something that has clinical value. And knowing how many calories you burn today is not clinically relevant. Uh, knowing your heartbeat, at least for now, it's not clinically re- relevant to a doctor. The doctor would not say, oh, please send me your Apple Health uh, report. Uh, I need to look at it so I can give you a better treatment. That doesn't really happen. So sleep is a good example but you know there is so much information happening in your house that doesn't happen during the consultation consultation is a 20 minute thing where you have barely any time to look at the translational aspect of of your health in other words the how your health state evolves over time you just look at it in that point in time and that's about as good as information you get it so be
1: that's like once a year at, at best probably at for best for a
0: lot of people yeah so I think you know there's this motivation of can we capture more higher resolution information with higher frequency outside of the clinic in a cheap way basically it has to be affordable it has to be accessible so the bathroom is a good place to start there's a lot of information going on there going on there and that's kind of where I got started with the idea so just to kind of fast forward and save all the not interesting details. My project is called Augie. Augie stands for Augmented GI or Augmented Gastroenterology. And the problem we're trying to solve is that patients with chronic digestive disorders rely... So digestive disorders as is irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease. Part of their treatment outside of the medication aspect is to identify how their lifestyle choices, such as diet stress, exercise, and sleep affect their GI symptoms, their gastroenterological symptoms, such as abdominal pain, gas, bloating, stool consistency, stool color, and so forth. And currently the best way there is to do it is through really smartphone apps that are just basically glorified Excel spreadsheets. You have to manually enter the information, and it is subjective to your own observation. And we have identified this as a problem where patients are not complying with this because it takes time to log in that information manually. So it's high cognitive load, uh, which results in low compliance and low completion rates of those forms. The information is subjective. And sometimes it's falsified, So people report the wrong dates. They have recall bias and sorts of all wrong information in general. And there's another problem, which is that doctors don't have a standard way of collecting this information. Every doctor will give you a different app or a different way to do it. Some of them will give you actually uh, paper-based diaries. Uh, Other ones will give you some app. And there's no standard way of analyzing that, nor they have the time during the consult, which is 20 minutes, to go over. And do a mental correlation analysis. They're also not trained to do so. And they actually complain about these things. Do they actually
1: get results with this sort of method? No, actually,
0: you can. uh, There is, for instance, in the case of irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, there's a syndrome scale, uh, IBS SSS, and several studies trying to measure the effectiveness of these types of apps show that there is no statistically significant improvement after using these apps. And given the evidence that it's, you know that it's it may be because it's subjective information it's difficult to keep track of this every day it's a high burden if you go to the toilet 6 10 15 times a day patients like with chronic digestive disorders do it's very high you know very hard for you to have to deal with entering manually information it's a, it shouldn't be like that same goes for food so you don't only have to log that you have to log your food you have to log your bowel movement characteristics and so forth so, we're working on a way to make all that as objective as possible and as easy as possible to collect. And also provide a communication channel with your physician where you already have the information digested. Uh, nice. Fun intended. Uh, by the time it reaches the physician. So, that's what Auggie is. Auggie is basically a companion app for patients with chronic digestive disorders. That allows them to objectively and easily capture their lifestyle inputs as well as GI symptoms and figure out what triggers what and improve their symptoms over time.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so I can speak personally. I've had I've never been diagnosed with anything, but I've well, I guess I had like gastritis and acid reflux, which led to esophageal ulcers. Which for the longest time, I had no idea what was causing that. I had two endoscopies and it really get better. And then I was just trying different diets with my girlfriend, like, we'll go vegan for a month. We'll yeah. do this for a month. I went gluten- free for a month, probably almost two years ago now. and that was it. Like I don't know if it's exactly gluten or what the exact thing was, yeah. but it stopped acid reflux, so I could sleep better at night, stops the burning, bloating gastritis stop drinking beer, switch to cider, <laughs> like all of these things. And like at this point now I can like actually start eating gluten. I don't know if I yeah. noticed anything now, like like a little bit by bit, it's coming back in and it's amazing. Like everyone's diet is different and how I went to multiple doctors. No one said like, Oh, don't try, try not eating bread for a few weeks. See how you feel. Yeah. Everyone's so unique. No one really knows what causes what, So you have to be able to figure out based off your diet and based off input-output, right? Like, what are you bringing in and what is it producing? And how do you figure out what can make that better? Because probably there's something everyone, like, you probably can't eat some stuff, but there's probably stuff you can't eat. And for every single person, there's a unique dietary restriction.
0: You bring a very important point, which is that every patient is unique in how lifestyle inputs interact with their GI tract. And it's being understood that that has to do, in part, because of your genetic background. It has to do with your microbiome as well, composition, and how that interacts with your, with your brain as well. So it, it really makes it very unique from person to person. It's true that there are studies that figure out some certain foods that seem to be generically interrelated by, interrelated by certain patients. So there is a thing called FODMAPs, which I can't pronounce the entire thing, but FODMAP is, is a type of nutrients and, and IBS patients are normally recommended low FODMAP uh, foods. Uh, what are some
1: examples? I don't know what that is either. Oh,
0: I guess gluten will fall into that. Caffeine okay. will fall into that. It's that, restrictive, wait, wanna very restrictive. I want to talk about hard. that too. Like you,
1: caffeine makes people poop too. Yeah. Like why? Is that because of the FUD? Uh, the fodmap? I have no idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have no idea. That's an interesting question. I'm sure there's some research into that. But yeah, so so everybody's different. And so understanding at a very detailed level with the best possible information what the interactions are is absolutely critical. So yeah, that's what we're trying to do.
1: That's awesome. Yeah? I, I really want to know like how are you using AI? Like what type of things are you sure. using the artificial intelligence for?
0: So the first thing we tackled is how you collect GI symptoms. So perhaps one of the important Symptoms that is uh, currently collected is stool consistency and stool frequency. For IBS patients, there are patients that are predominantly constipated or predominantly with diarrhea. Or there are some of them that are called IBS-M, which is mixed type, which is kind of fluctuate between diarrhea and constipation all the time. There's all kinds of flavors. So capturing the consistency of the stool, such as constipation or diarrhea, is an important marker. Um, it is currently being done in a very subjective way and in a way that is not precise. Clinicians normally measure consistency in a scale that has seven levels. Most apps that use used to log this information, some of them have seven levels, but it's proven that to be absolute crap. <laughs> <laughs> People don't make good assessments over time. They just don't have the cognitive effort to uh, be able to make good observations every single time it happens every day. And so that information is bad. So we thought that computer vision, and in particular, deep learning, can help in objectively measuring the consistency of this tool. Now, that's interesting, because in that case, is like having a doctor in your <laughs> phone or in your home. So what we're trying to develop is, uh, we're actually already working on this, is algorithms that Allow you to just take a picture of the stool, and it will detect where the stool is and characterize its consistency in a clinically relevant way that otherwise would not be. So that's kind of the first thing we're we're working on. There are more things that will come after that. That we, if we're successful with this first one, obviously um, stool color is interesting. So, for instance, I give an example: blood in the stool is a common symptom of non-IBS patients, but definitely patients with Crohn's disease or with Mm. ulcerative colitis due to the inflammation in the gut. That also applies to patients that have uh, colon cancer uh, or other types of gastric cancers that also create polyps that bleed, and therefore you have blood in the stool. I would love if we could develop a method to capture that early on, because the human eye will not pay attention every single time if there is some little droplet of blood. and knowing that that is happening is, is important for, you know, uh, prevention or early detection of Yeah, of, catching that early of, is
1: important, especially your, your inner organs yeah. if you, you don't want that to spread.
0: Exactly. So, so that's an interesting one. Another way we also want to, to help these patients is capturing diet. Diet is currently very difficult to capture in, in a consistent way and precise way. Uh, if you ask the patients to log it manually, they will stop doing it after two weeks. And uh, so that's a, that's a difficult one. Some companies are working on computer vision for diet tracking. So you can take a picture of the meal, and it will tell you the elements there. That works to a certain level. It doesn't seem to be perfect in certain cases. There is no way you can tell if there is a, a floating pepper in a soup mm-hmm. and know what kind of pepper it is. So uh, just go through people's
1: Instagram see get all their pictures yeah,
0: on. Yeah, that's a very attractive idea because then you yeah. could just snap a picture and get the information. But that is also not perfect. And some people at MIT are working on ways of dictating basically what you ate in a very specific way. So you have to know how to do it. It parses the speech to text and it parses the text and looks for keywords and kind of searches the usda nutrition database for that nutritional information Mm -hmm. so my gut says (laughs) that (laughs) the best approach for diet tracking is some combination of all of that some combination of dictation of taking pictures and some other contextual information that can be taken through I don't know, your location, if we know, or your open table profile reservations in whatever restaurant Mm -hmm. and things like that. So I think that that will be a, it's a much more complex system, but that will be the next one that we want to tackle.
1: Well, it is for a very complex system, right? Because I'm thinking, even if I'm logging every single thing I eat, Say, I have a sandwich or a soup, for example. Yeah. I might not know there's a floating pepper in it. Yeah. Like, I don't know what type of pepper that is. I don't know where the food comes from. Maybe, yeah. like, this pepper is okay. Like, same pepper, but one's from California, one's from the East Coast, and one's good for me, one's not. That's right. So I get that you have to, like, work your way into that granularity. Yeah. But it's, like, a very complex system, like, just because it goes into the whole food system in general of not knowing where stuff is coming from and yeah. like, what's in your stuff.
0: Absolutely. Well, the good thing is that. Any prepackaged food has a nutrition label, and that is present in the USDA database. So as long as you know the what, as long as you have the package where that food came in, you know what's in it in a very precise level. If you go to a restaurant, you might have to look in the menu kind or of get the data. Home, yeah. And if you're cooking at home, then I, I think that those are only the three cases, right? The three types of things you you put in your in your mouth and and if you cook at home, you better know what you're cooking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise. Uh, but yeah, so, so I think it's a, it's a complex issue, but I think that's, that's generally useful, not only for patients with digestive disorder. I think that diet tracking is just generally useful. I mean, to be honest, I would, we're tackling this because we've seen that chronic digestive disorder, disorders are a burden for these patients, which account for about 20 to 25% of the US suffers from these types of disorders. Wow. It is about ten to fifteen worldwide as well. So it's a high incidence. And there's also a lot of unreported people. I have GI symptoms. I've never been to a gastroenterologist. I might have some weak form of IBS, you want, you know? I I don't I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that that Augie as an app, of course we have to solve a big problem, which is digestive disorders first. But I think that over time I would love if this were something that people use in general because the working theory is that there is no, it's not a binary situation in which you either have a digestive disorder or you don't have. It seems more like a you know spectrum of the manifestation of symptoms. That if you reach some threshold, then you'll go to the doctor and then you'll get diagnosed. But if you don't get there, you'll just never be diagnosed. But you you're still suffering from some you know, condition, even if it's mild. And I think that apps like this, if you make it very easy to track the information, almost seamless. I mean, the goal is seamless, that that you would not have to think about tracking this information. That would be the ideal goal. And I think that would bring a lot of benefit for people, especially in places like the US where we like crap. <laughs> Literally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's awesome. So something I was thinking about is How do you get people from a psychological perspective to take a picture of their poop every time?
0: It seems to be that if you have severe symptoms, you have very high motivation to do it. You're already doing it. You actually care a lot about it. If you read, uh, there are forums and and websites of uh, uh, patient advocacy groups and you can read how they talk about their symptoms. You can go on Reddit and look at the same thing. They are so open about it. Uh, they're incredibly open about it, and because it, it really affects them. It doesn't affect only their just the, the physical health. It affects mental health. There's a lot of depression caused by this and stress. These people that talk like that, they can't. They have incontinence problems. They they don't know if they're going to have time to reach the bathroom. And they're constantly needing to know where is the closest yeah. bathroom so they're very much aware of it they have very high motivation and it seems a lot easier for them to capture you know it, it doesn't seem like a difficult thing for them to have to capture this tool information through a picture they're already doing it uh, visually anyways and i think that part of what we need to do as well is gamify that experience make it a lot more interesting in fact some researchers at um First at Stanford and then at the University of Washington, they were doing playing with a self-experimentation. How an update design was allowing them to take one day and design an experiment and kind of test it for like 10 days. And the the Apple program, which days you should, you should have this particular food, which days you shouldn't have this particular food, and then really do just statistical testing and see if it's uh, statistically significantly affecting your symptoms like or not.
1: A-B testing, yeah, period, digestive
0: yeah. tract. It's an A-B... A, that's right. I couldn't have said it better. So it's every testing for a digestive tract. So I think the gamification aspect is also an important part of, of succeeding in this type of uh, solutions.
1: Right. Figuring out what works for you using, like, do this this day. We'll give yeah. you two poo points. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, gamification. Yeah. And sharing. They're They're definitely open to share within their community. And I think that part of it is also... They, they within themselves, they talk a lot about this stuff, just like I'm talking to you about crap, and (laughs) I don't give a crap. (laughs) But I think that, overall, we have this kind of taboo that, oh, crap, is this thing for kids, and and, and it's childish to talk about it, or it's disgusting to talk about it. I want to change that. I want to make it as normal as talking about cardiovascular health or any other type of aspect of your health. I don't see why it should be different.
1: Right, it's one of the most important parts. It
0: goes. It seems to be a very important body. part. It seems to be that disease begins in the gut, as uh, and a lot of diseases begins in, begin in the gut as well, actually. So
1: that makes sense. So I'm just brainstorming off ideas based off of the other stuff you talked about. How there's this place in Boston and collecting fecal matter. <laughs> like, have you? So I'm just like collecting everyone's poop and like running analysis on it. And then having uh, talked before on the show about like data markets Like you have like poo markets where you're like selling and trading people's poo to find like whose poo is right for who, like (laughs) (laughs) poomatch.com.
0: Your poo uh, poo profile. Uh, Poo profile. (laughs) Your profile. Um, (laughs) It's interesting because... You know, we, we need a lot of data to train these models to be able to analyze the stool through image or analyze the through, through, through an image as well. And but there's also this huge privacy constraint where it's very delicate information. And some people might say, I don't want to take a picture and be in a database. So one of the things that I'm looking at is federated learning. I don't know if you've mm, heard of this yeah. concept where you can locally train models, the same model for everybody, and somehow upload not the data, but just the model parameters after training, and kind of do some average yeah. of, of the weights of a neural network, for instance. And that's one of the things that I think could be interesting, because then you're not compromising the images, the data that these people are sharing. They're just leveraging the local training that happens on their device. And yeah. And that's possible just because devices today are good enough that you can run your own nets on your phone.
1: Right, they uh, do that today. Right, yeah. like your speed or text completion is federated learning. No, they don't take your private data of what you're texting people, yeah. but it learns how you text and then sends it up yeah. to the cloud, averages it to a global model, and sends it back down to you. And then that's correct. There's little ways maybe people can grab some information that. Yeah. And they throw some noise in there to go against that. But yeah, on average, much safer than just like, here's all my data.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I think that that is uh, that is an interesting part of this, of this process for sure.
1: So do you see other companies out there? i looked up online, like other people are trying to make smart toilets and stuff. Are you worried about other people doing that? Are you happy? Or do you think they're actually doing it?
0: So I think the, the idea in general is... I'm not worried about talking about the idea. I think that the more I talk about it, the better, in fact, because I get better feedback. And I'd rather have someone say, you're wasting your time, David, than someone say, oh, how cool, but that's about it. So I'm not worried about people doing this. I think that what I'm trying to do is have a specific vision, and I'm putting together a team, and I have a specific strategy. And I think in the end, it doesn't really matter which idea you have. What matters is the execution of the idea. And so if other people want to jump in and do the same, even better, because then it validates the fact that I'm pursuing a valid business, <laughs> if you want to think in that way. Other people, as you said, are working on smart toilets and, and so things. Most of what's happened in smart toilet world is not analyzing data at all. Uh, it mostly has to do with hygiene and sanitation and the bidet version uh, of the european toilet mm. so just the, like the japanese toilet uh, the ten thousand dollar japanese Toto toilet is, you try that. <laughs> is uh, i have i've been to japan but i oh, did yeah. not try oh, it no. <laughs> yeah it's mostly dealing with sanitation and hygiene i was chatting with cmo of this company in boston who manufactures a toilet cover for elderly homes one problem that all people have is that they might need to go a lot to the toilet, but if they clean too much with toilet paper, it creates a lot of irritation. And clean themselves. Yes. Okay. with Toilet paper, it creates irritation. And it's also the, the yeah. idea that it's basically a nurse that has to clean them. Uh, yeah, they probably cases. getting
1: cheap toilet paper at the nursing home too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: So so they're trying to, to, well, they are already manufacturing, commercializing these, these toilet covers that actually does all the, uh, you know, bidet functionality to reduce uh, irritation. And and that's about it in the smart toilet world. It's not smart. It's just a mechanized <laughs> sanitation platform. And by the way, they are $10,000. So I don't know how accessible wow. that is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, just doing some research before the podcast. I saw like Micron, like a chip manufacturer is looking into one. Really? Yeah, but all these things look like like oh yeah, we will be doing this. There's no like concrete anything. They're working on other stuff. Yeah. And then there was one thing I forget who did it, but one of those like a comedy, like 11 minute long, like smart pipe, and just like someone walking around the office, like we got smart pipe. Like, it was funny. You should. I'll send that to you. Uh,
0: please do. Uh, the best thing I've seen so far in terms of, you know, medically relevant smart toilets. Toto, around 2009, Toto, the Japanese manufacturer, around 2009, came up with this uh, smart toilet. Again, ten thousand dollars, and I think they it was measuring glucose levels to some extent, and uh, in urine, and I think that the purpose was to help, you know, uh, patients with diabetes to be able to measure glucose in a more reliable way or some sort. I'm not sure if every diabetes patient has uh, ten thousand dollars to spend on on smart toilet. Will
1: insurance pay for it? Uh, that's a
0: good question. <laughs> So yeah, I don't think I think that these types of interventions you have to make them they are either accessible and they scale or they're just not you know on the long run they're not worth pursuing if you don't have a plan for um, scaling this and making it accessible to everybody.
1: Right. You have to come at it from a lean yeah. startup perspective to well,
0: well, it's fine to target a specific population. We're doing that. Um and it's fine if you're working in luxury products like these toilets. It's fine to target Initially, some you know a small population, a small subset of the of the market. But in the long run, if you want to have success, I think that you need to become a platform, and to do that, you need to be accessible and scale well. So that makes sense.
1: Awesome, man. Well, excited to see you guys work over the next semester. This was my secret plan to figure out everything you're doing we'll <laughs> be competing against each other and startup awards. But yeah, it was a great great discussion on microbiome to fecal analysis and like how everyone's unique and how that whole internal system we just walk around in all day plays so david thank you for coming on man it was my pleasure thank you man (laughs) got your poop figured out oh i gotta do it right now gotta go to the bathroom gotta figure this out gotta figure this out like my cat yes I don't know but what I ate just put me to the flow gotta go back to the bathroom flow when you gotta go you gotta go when you gotta go you gotta go when you gotta go you gotta go might be because of your microbiome I'm here at home it's safe to poop but when I'm out I don't know where the nearest bathroom is so I gotta figure it out Gotta figure it out soon What's going on with my stomach What causes this Maybe if I knew every single day That when I take a crap It's because of something I ate Or something that's in my body Something that relates to me Relates for me Let's see when we're skating through Where my style is free So follow me, follow me home As we find these answers To our microbiome